It's Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. My guest is Father Bentley Anderson. He's written a book called Black, White, and Catholic, New Orleans Interracialism, 1947 to 1956. It's about the clashes among Catholics in New Orleans as they found themselves standing on different sides of the issue of racial segregation. In the late 1940s, groups of blacks and whites led by members of the New Orleans Province of the Society of Jesus began to prod the heads of Catholic schools and churches to integrate. But it was not the insistence of those interracial groups that finally moved the New Orleans Jesuit province to call for desegregation. It was the stark division within the Jesuit community and the emboldened social agenda of the international order of Jesuits. New Orleans Catholic institutions didn't finally integrate until the fall of 1954, months after the U.S. Supreme Court decision Brown v. Board of Education, which made racial segregation in public schools illegal. That lapse of a few months made it appear as though the Southern Jesuits were reluctant to take a stand before the federal government. And Father Anderson says his experience with precisely that kind of reluctance both informed and was informed by his research. I guess since I'm a Southerner, I've always been aware of of race. You can't get away from it as a Southerner. And there was an incident when I was in college that most probably sparked uh, a real interest in racial justice. What happened? Well, I was I was a member of Pi Kappa Alpha fraternity, which uh, uh, the local chapter was the Mu chapter. It was founded in 1890 at uh, Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina. And now there are many kinds of fraternities. What kind <clears throat> of fraternity? This was a Greek, well, uh, a I social, mean, social. But like this was the Bacchanalia type fraternity, or was kind of like a bookish fraternity. <laughs> no, no, no. Most of the members, most of the members were uh, athletes, members of football team, basketball team, tennis. Jock fraternity. It was a jock fraternity. Uh, I happened to be the uh, equipment manager, but um, my senior year, I was vice president, and one of the trainers of the football team wanted to join, uh, Reno Wilson. Uh, he's African American, and so at the beginning of the of the my senior year, nineteen, this is fall of nineteen eighty. In the chapter meeting, when we're deciding what bids we're going to give out to the various students who want to join, and a bid is when you an allow invitation, somebody an invitation to join the the fraternity. We had a discussion and a vote, but the discussion unfortunately deteriorated into really a race-based diatribe against allowing blacks into the chapter. And one of the basketball players and one of the tennis players, they were the most vocal. So they didn't want a black uh, member. And so uh, Reno was blackballed, and he he was never admitted out uh, into our chapter. Now, 25 years later... Captain of the football team and I petitioned the National Fraternity in Memphis. That's where the headquarters are of Pi Kappa Alpha. And we were able to rectify the situation. Reno was eventually initiated into Clemson's, Clemson University's chapter uh, just a few years ago. So retroactively? Retroactively, but the national director understood. He said this was not the first time that they'd had this situation where people were going to national and complaining about something that had happened in the past. What was that conversation like when you said 25 years after the initial, as you called it, blackballing, where you said, hey, Reno, let's try, let's, let's write a letter, let's petition? I was still had uh, this nagging uh, situation from college. And I was president of the student body at the same time. And I didn't 
I didn't I, I didn't take a stance. So there was guilt on my part for not either resigning from the chapter or making this a bigger issue for campus. So 25 years later, it dawns on me. I have this insight. Why not try to rectify this? It was around 2005. It was about the time the book came out. The book that you wrote on this There's, subject. Uh, when my book came out, I realized, here, are, I'm writing about people who stood up for racial justice, who, you know, who did something. The struggle for racial justice that Anderson studied came from within New Orleans's Catholic institutions. At the center of the controversy was the well-regarded Loyola University, a whites-only school run by the Jesuits. Loyola started in 1912. The Jesuits have been trying to build up the institution. It relies on local students. It's supposed to be for males only because there are women colleges, Dominican College, and Ursuline College for white women, and then Xavier University in New Orleans, which is, at the time, was the only black Catholic institution of higher learning in the United States. It accepted both male and females. So this story, it even has its roots further back as far as Catholics and and the race question, because the organizations that operated in New Orleans and had support from Loyola and the other universities, one was a student organization, the National Federation of Catholic College Students, was established in the 1930s. As a progressive group that spans several colleges on the East Coast? Right. That organization in 1944 finally establishes an interracial portfolio. That's the origin of Catholic interracialism or interracial activities. comes from the National Federation of Catholic College Students as well as the Catholic Committee of the South, which was established in 1938-39 by Southern Catholics under the auspices of the bishops of the, of the South. And they were looking at four or five major topics that dealt with the South. Remember, Franklin Roosevelt said the number one economic problem in the United States in 1938 was the South. And so Southern Catholics said, well, we have a social program, and several other church documents spell out how to address social issues. So the president says that the top economic problem in the United States is the South. If you're a young Jesuit in the 40s, this is like the place to be if you're a real firebrand young Jesuit probably. I mean, right? And one of these young Jesuits in in New Orleans is Father Joe Fichter, um, who is the advisor to a student interracial group that begins and an adult interracial group that begins. Introduce me to Father Joe Fichter because he's the advisor. Kind of paint the picture for me. Um. <clears throat> Originally, he is, he's from Union City, New Jersey. He had a vocation. Uh, records show that he had gone to a seminary or a minor seminar, seminary out in Ohio, but only for a short period of time. But as a, a young adult, <clears throat> he still feels the religious call. So he approaches the New York province of the Society of Jesus. And the Jesuits of the New York province tell Joe Fichter, well, you don't have enough Greek and Latin so maybe you should apply to the southern province because they'll take you. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a bias about southern education, educational levels. But Victor enters uh, the New Orleans province. After finishing uh, with his theological studies and getting ordained, he goes to Harvard to earn a Ph.D. in sociology. And he obtains that degree in, uh, or receives the degree in 1947. And he's immediately assigned to go teach at Loyola University in New Orleans. And... Victor already has a very progressive outlook. Uh, How on, long is he there before he starts organizing? Imme- no, immediately. 
<laughs> Even before he left Harvard, he had, his in his autobiography, he mentions that he had already started talking to Loyola officials about how they should desegregate and the process. He's not the only one in the province. There are Southern Jesuits who are also concerned about the race question. You couldn't get away from it. I mean, segregation is the culture. But Fichter goes down and he starts immediately. And that ruffles the feathers of the more conservative members of the Jesuit community at Loyola. So he's got these two groups that are that are starting. These are students and adults, and they're not doing, you know, they're not orchestrating boycotts. What kinds mm. of things are they doing that is, that's ruffling feathers? Something as simple as holding meetings on campus where black students and white students are coming together in a social academic setting. They would meet after hours to discuss anybody interested in the race question. So people from the the young women from Dominican or Ursuline, uh, the white women, any of the folks from Xavier, any of the men or women at Xavier University, black students come to Loyola, and Loyola predominantly male. So you've got these white and black students meeting as as social equals. So there's social equality. That's what disturbs anyone who either favors the status quo or favors segregation. Because once you start treating blacks as equals, segregation, the whole system collapses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They would do things like they, they invited... They invited a black priest to give a lecture. And the fact that they invited this black priest, uh, Father Clarence Howard, Father Clarence Howard right. the fact that they invited him was not the huge controversy. What was the huge no, controversy? No, the, the huge con- controversy with having Father Howard come to, um, to Loyola was that, that Father Joe Fichter invited Father Howard to come to dinner at the Jesuit community, at the Jesuit residence. And there were members of the house, of the Jesuit community working, uh, living at Loyola, who didn't want a black man in their dining room, sitting down, eating with them. It would be all right if the the black man was the butler or serving dinner, but not to have a black man sit down as a social equal at dinner. And that that caused quite a a commotion. Actually, the board of directors, the Jesuits who comprised the board of directors, they met, told the president, Fichter should uninvite, disinvite this black priest to dinner. And that and so Fichter was advised by the president not to bring Father Howard to to the dining room in uh, in the Jesuit community. And so he wasn't. The president of the university said do not invite this guy to dinner. Correct. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. My guest is Father Bentley Anderson, the author of Black, White, and Catholic, New Orleans Interracialism, 1947 to 1956. In it, he writes about an interracial group of students who made some of the first steps to challenge the segregation policies of Catholic institutions in New Orleans. You know, they've been scheduling their events, and, and then they invite the archbishop to one of their meetings. And so they have this whole thing where the students basically like what they're laying out, not demands, but concerns to the archbishop. So what are the students, what kinds of things that they want? Basic things. Take down the the signs in churches that segregate blacks and whites. Change the textbooks that are being used in the Catholic schools that appear to be promoting segregation or promoting discrimination. And you've got to remember, in those days, 
you didn't confront an archbishop or a bishop for that matter or your principal you know sister so and so you just you you showed deference and respect now this meeting that the students had with the archbishop took place in the office of the president of Loyola so it was all within the realm of respectability it was supposed to be a, a respectful conversation one of the Xavier students asked the archbishop about desegregating the law school at Loyola University. So this would have been July of 1948. The Democratic Party has not yet met for their national convention that year. But Truman is about to announce the desegregation of the military and the desegregation of the federal government, the D.C. operation. So, So race is a part of the fabric of the country. Of the um, debate, of the national debate, debate going on. But the president of Loyola, Thomas Shields, President Shields was quite upset with the way this whole meeting had unfolded and how it transpired because he felt as though Fichter was behind the scenes prompting these students to challenge the archbishop, to challenge church policy, and then to challenge Loyola policy. And when the archbishop, when Archbishop Rummel was asked about desegregating Loyola, the archbishop said, well, it's not my institution. I can't make that decision. And then he turns the question to, over to President Shields, who was quite upset because now he's on the spot. And he comes up with reasons why the university won't uh, or can't desegregate in 48. Shields <clears throat> is trying to protect uh, the institution. So he does ask the, the Xavier students, what do you think would the happen? The black students. The black students. What do you think would happen? Our school of law will fold because the law students will go to Tulane or to LSU. Because they don't want to go to classes with black, black students. students. So he says, you'll be responsible for the demise uh, of an institution that we've been trying to build for since 1912. And you have to wonder, is that a good enough reason not to desegregate the law school? There's nothing in state law for the state of Louisiana that kept Loyola from desegregating. They could have desegregated whenever they wanted to because the state does not have the power to tell a private institution whether or not it could have black students or not. Now, this is 48. Two years later, the Supreme Court rendered two major decisions regarding grad studies. One was for Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma. One was for the state of Texas. But after 1950, it's quite clear that the graduate schools are going to integrate, no matter whether they're private or public. But in 48, Shields is concerned about, about his law school Right. And to, to Father Fichter, does it just Father Joe Fichter, is he looking at President Shields and going, you don't understand. Your institution has the power to do this. Joe Fichter ha- was single-minded. He believed he was right. Of course, as history plays out, he was right. But I don't think he suffered fools gladly. And I think that's how he saw the situation at Loyola. F- Father Joe Fichter considered F- Father Shields to be uh, just on the wrong side of history here? On the right. Most probably half the the Jesuits at Loyola University were in favor of desegregating, and the other half were in favor of maintaining segregation. Which was a serious problem to the Jesuit community there, which says we will be a united front. front. It was a major problem. The funniest thing is when Jesuits go used to go into the—this is how it used to be. When they'd go into the dining room, it was a horseshoe at, at uh, the hall that, where the Jesuits lived was called Thomas Hall. So they go into the dining room in Thomas Hall, and the rector had one had his place at the head of the horseshoe. And then everyone coming into the dining room, they all ate at the same time. You'd sit to the left or the right of the rector and then fill in seats all the way around. 
Well, the normal practice was to have reading while you're eating, so reading at table. Someone would read some edifying church, spiritual, theological-related work for the betterment of the community. Well, they didn't always have a reader, so the rector would allow, the superior would allow talking during the meal. Well, when they got, when guys started talking, they weren't talking about the weather or sports. They would get into arguments over race issues, politics, labor. After a while, the progressives, the liberal types, the pro-integration, pro-labor, they'd start sitting on one side of the room, of the table, and the pro-segregation or status quo people would sit on the other side. And that uh, practice is brought to the attention of the provincial, who's over the whole region of the southern the Southern Jesuits, and he writes a letter saying this practice of sitting where you want to has to stop. That's it, the thing that <clears throat> first gets them up in arms? Well, because... Sitting it, sitting around at the dinner table? Because it was... They didn't want to... They didn't want to talk to each other. Because it's an indicator of deeper problems. Oh, yeah, yeah. Instead of sitting and talk and arguing, they just started saying, okay, fine, I'm going to sit on my side, you sit on your side. So it, it was splitting the community in half. And there's also... There, there are camps even in the classrooms... So you have, you know, Joe Fichter, sociology professor, teaching that segregation is morally wrong. And then you've got, what's his name, Martin Burke? Martin Burke, the philosopher, a Jesuit philosopher, saying, explaining how you could uh, defend racial segregation. You could morally justify it. Was he giving them, like, a philosophical proof? Uh, unfortunately, I don't know exactly how he presented the arguments. That's, I've only heard from one of his students, and <clears throat> he's a chemist, and he just said the, that Martin Burke was an unreconstructed Southerner. I'm not sure what academic uh, argument he gave, but I'm sure that <clears throat> you ask any philosopher, and, and they can tell you, you can take almost any position and come up with an argument. So that uh, was also causing trouble at the university, especially for the Jesuits, they are not supposed to be presenting controversial material and disrupting their students' thinking and, and the value system. And I presume that both Victor and Burke were telling their, their particular students that the other guy was wrong, which is, again, uh, a violation of, sort of, the, um, of the faculty code, but also of the ideals of, of Jesuits as a whole, we should not be dissatisfying our students by presenting competing or controversial, conflicting points of, of view. There should be uh, a united front. Southern Jesuits leading the charge for integration found support in a policy paper issued by Father General John B. Janssens. He was the highest authority of the Jesuit order underneath the Pope. Janssens wrote a 1949 letter about the church's stance on social issues. He declared that the most pressing one was labor, the conditions of workers. That letter then served as the basis for arguments to desegregate. The Southern Jesuits take Jansen's work and say, well, we can't have economic justice without racial justice in the South. We have to, we have to address the race question in order for uh, as Southern Catholics, in order to move forward. You can't say, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to have economic justice. The race question underlies Southern society. I mean, or so, the race practices underline, underlie all aspects of Southern life. 
in the field of education, of work, the social dynamics, everything is tied in with race. So if getting fair wages means strengthening the unions, well, blacks aren't allowed in the unions. Unions, so you got to do something about the unions. And if you need to make sure that people um, are prepared, are, are well enough educated to get good jobs, well, blacks aren't allowed in all the schools. So you have to deal with, you have to address that issue. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Stay tuned for Cityscape at 7.30. George Bodarki digs into the issue of affordable housing in New York City as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign. That's Cityscape at 7.30. Today, Father Bentley Anderson is my guest. He's a historian who has studied the struggle to desegregate the Catholic institutions of New Orleans. The issue of racial segregation divided the Jesuit community until a policy letter was circulated by the head of the International Order of Jesuits, Father General John B. Janssens. Right. It is a, it's an actual, he, he writes a letter addressed to all the Jesuits of the world. In that letter, Janssens was calling on Jesuits to stand up to the forces that created injustice. It was a very progressive stance to take, and one that broke with the historic role of the Roman Catholic Church. The New Orleans province used the new policy of economic justice to support their policy of racial justice. They drafted a policy document for integration and did the equivalent of sending it to corporate. They sent it to Father General Janssens for revisions. Janssens, who was the Jesuit so actively expanding the social agenda of the Jesuit order. So maybe it's no surprise that he had some corrections to make. Jesuits of the New Orleans province were getting together to form their their policy, their answer to the race question. There were a couple of opportunities for these weasel words to, to get into the policy. And it seems like Janssen tried to, to head that off at the pass. Issues like uh, well, we're not going to base admission solely on the base of race. And Jansen comes in and goes, well, no, 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 no. We're not going to base it on race at all. Is that, I mean, is he kind of this, this like almost watchdog, kind of making sure there are no loopholes here? You know, I've been asked uh, regarding the, uh, the New Orleans province race policy, the, the policy is hammered out during, um, in 1952, and then eventually, but the, uh, there's procrastination in the in the in the New Orleans province, and so the the letter doesn't the, their policy statement doesn't get to Rome till January of '54. But Father General has four or five key staff people. Father General being Jansen's. Jansen's right. His staff. Uh, there's four or five key people, and they they represent different parts of the of the world. And so I'm I've been asked. <clears throat> how Janssen's became so interested in the particulars of the New Orleans province letter. When he's, you know, there's 20 plus thousand Jesuits around the world and he's worried about the overall operation. But I'm convinced that the uh, the Jesuit assistant for the United States, who's not a Southerner, he's a Northerner, that he paid attention. So the Close staff attention. member. The staff member paid, but this is one of the, you know, there's four or five key people that uh, work directly for, for Janssen's or any father general, they're they're pretty uh, important people, and I'm convinced that <clears throat> that's the person who is reading line by line the document to make sure that the New Orleans province didn't somehow create loopholes or use phrases that could be misinterpreted or reinterpreted to ensure that. 
when it came to it, especially admission into the order. See, I talked about Reno not being allowed into the fraternity. Well, the Jesuits had a, the New Orleans province had to address the same issue, allowing a black person into the province, offering them, you know, a bid. The verbiage in the draft of the uh, policy letter left loopholes. Like what? Like what? Well, so one was had to do with assimilation, which he took a, uh, Father Jansen's took exception with because it sounds like the white members of the of the province wanted the black applicant to assimilate into white society or culture. Jansen's struck that and said, "This isn't a question about assimilation. It's a question about will they be of service to the society and to the church at large." It's their suitability and their potential. Does this person demonstrate have the characteristics, you know, the, the talents, the traits that uh, look like this is somebody who will be of good service over a long period of time, not what do they look like and whether or not they'll fit in with us. And if Jansen hadn't come in, I mean, you know, before Jansen came in to fix the wording of this, it said the order will 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 discourage people who do not look like they can assimilate. Right. If they can't assimilate, even appearance. Really? There was, a, there was a problem with um, the wording on appearance. And, and Jansen wrote, wrote back and said, look, you know, this shouldn't even be part of the discussion. But he goes, what we think is pleasing appearance is white-based, but it shows the bias of, of the white community. And there's something in the province letter that went to, or a document that went to Rome, and then the response. I've seen the original document, the original responses that that Jansen's wrote. Because the provincial Jesuits, uh, Jesuits from New Orleans are just sending letters back and forth with, with Jansen's, with Father Jansen's. Right, but it was the province policy letter that went. Jansen's is, is responding to it. He's drafting his response. And he writes in the margins, which don't make the official letter that goes back to New Orleans saying, correct this, correct that, strike this, strike that. He writes in, in the margins a comment that deals with has to do with assimilation, and um, and he says, you know, he had worked in the Congo, the Belgian Congo, and he goes, I find that some of these young men from the Congo are more urbane and sophisticated than Europeans, and so it's not a question of blacks assimilating or you know uh, assimilating to white culture. Perhaps we should emulate them. So it's kind of interesting that he turns the table on the whites, on the you know on the on the, on the southerners. So don't judge everything according to a white standard. In 1954, Jansen's approved the new policy. It took 10 years for the New Orleans Jesuits to desegregate their various schools, parishes, retreat houses, and the province itself. Loyal University will not desegregate until 1964. Now, one of the reasons that they give, they, <clears throat> they were afraid that if Loyola desegregated, Xavier University would suffer. So there was concern... Because black students would enroll at Loyola, Loyola. and, they could have, and leave, leave Xavier. Leave Xavier. So there was concern, and even when the School of Education, the master's program, was desegregated at Loyola, the Jesuits at Loyola contacted the sisters at Xavier and, and asked them, is it okay, do you want us to desegregate our master's program? And the sisters wrote back and said, oh, yes, please do, because you all have a stronger program. So we would be happy if you all desegregated. Um, because they wanted their students to, to get a better, a better education. 
The story of the push for desegregation in New Orleans' Catholic schools is the story of two factions, the ones who wanted to integrate and the ones who wanted to maintain racial segregation. Racial prejudice was the basis for segregation, but Father Anderson says Jesuits reluctant to integrate were also motivated by a desire to preserve Catholic institutions. When you were doing this research, did you still find it hard to sympathize with that point of view? You try to sympathize with all points of view. I couldn't. I, I I could never sympathize with Martin Burke, uh, the philosophy professor who justified segregation. I presented their point of view, but I couldn't sympathize with what they were advocating. I could understand the you know the administration's point of view. Loyal would suffer financially and then academically. Students and or faculty might leave if they integrated too soon. On the other hand, I really do like Joe Fichter and people who were promoting civil rights, and you're, you're wishing that, that their point of view would have been embraced sooner uh, and that change would have come uh, earlier, but you wouldn't have the institutions, I don't think, today. I think they would, some would have folded or collapsed. Father Bentley Anderson is an assistant professor of history at St. Louis University. He's at Fordham as holder of the Loyola chair. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about this. All right. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. That's it for Fordham Conversations. You can find archived shows on WFUV.org or subscribe to our podcast. Become a fan of our Facebook page. Search WFUV's Fordham Conversations. Or follow us on Twitter. We're registered as Focon, F-O-C-O-N. Robin Shannon will be your host next week. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Mary Wilson.